All right. Uh, I get the distinct privilege of uh, welcoming up our speaker for the morning. Before I do that, though, let me just tell you this. We are two weeks away from welcoming back Russ, who has been on sabbatical since uh, the end of August, beginning of September. Uh, every seven years, kind of as a rhythm of part of our, uh, our staff rhythm, our full-time staff takes three months for sabbatical, and uh, this was year 14 for Russ here at New Community, and so uh, he's been taking the last three months, has had a wonderful time. I had the opportunity to meet with him a couple of weeks ago and kind of do a, a mid-sabbatical check-in. He is resting, he's recharged, he's excited, also realized how tired he was, and so this has been a really wonderful time for him to take a deep breath. And uh, he is excited to be rejoining us. He will be back here on Sunday, the first Sunday of Advent, which is crazy that we're even talking about the first Sunday of Advent two weeks from now, the 27th of November. So, uh, but we are excited to welcome him back. So we've got uh, a guest speaker this morning, and then we'll have one more guest speaker uh, next weekend. But I get to introduce to you this morning a good friend of mine, Okay. In 20, uh, no, 2006 or 7, I had the privilege of meeting Jeff uh, and his wonderful wife, Christy, somewhere here, maybe in the back, I don't know. Oh, way up, the, uh, up top there. <clears throat> and we, uh, in this point in our life, Grace and I's life, we lived in a crazy place called Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, the Wild West of North Idaho. We were there. Uh, I had been working with Young Life. I had stepped out of uh, Young Life, uh, my kind of vocation in Young Life at that point. I was in small group with uh, Jeff and Christy for maybe a year or two previous to that. And I jumped onto a church staff, uh, a church staff that looked very different than this type of church. Uh, but Jeff was actually my direct report. He was my boss. And uh, within the first few weeks of being on this church staff together, we realized that we had a very special friendship uh, and in many, many ways kind of viewed ministry in, uh, in some parallel paths. And uh, we would commiserate often in our little office that was kind of off to the side of this big, massive church campus about how if we ever had the opportunity to do something different, we would maybe do something different. And, uh, and that led me, after about 10 months on that church staff, to move back to Spokane and take this job. And then about three years after that, Jeff, we were able to call in to a position here at New Community, and he served on our church staff here as a church planter for a year, year and a half, two years, somewhere right in there. So he came here, embedded in our community for uh, you know, the better part of a year or so, and then went back into Coeur d'Alene and planted a church there through many, many different circumstances, has stepped on to uh, a, uh, as first kind of came in in like a part-time role, is that correct? And then has moved into the presidency of Communitas International uh, and um, has served in that role for how many years now? Three years. Uh, worldwide church planting organization doing incredible things, uh, not just here locally, but way beyond throughout the world. Uh, he was telling me this morning they're training, currently training 2,000 people to go back into their context to uh, be missionaries, to uh, bring the word, to bring hope, to bring love uh, into different communities. And so he'll share a little bit more about that. But he's an incredible man, uh, somebody who has been a great friend of mine for a long time. We're very, very thankful to have him. So let's welcome up Jeff. Wow. 
Thanks, Gav. I must be getting old to get an intro like that. You just took all of my time. So uh, now I got to do this all in 60 minutes instead of 70. Uh, hi, everybody. It is so um, wonderful to be back here with you. It has been a while. It's, it was pre-COVID uh, since I've been here. Um, so it's really great to be back and to see good friends. Um, COVID was a huge change for all of us. Uh, it was a very difficult year. I had been named to the presidency of Communitas about four or five months before COVID hit. I was on my way to Europe uh, for one of our international large gatherings uh, that we do pretty frequently. And uh, in New York, we got turned around because COVID had hit. And as a lot of you experienced, you know, here I got called into a position. And I said to the board, and they called me into this position, I said, the highest and best use for me in this role is to not be in an office. And for the next 14 months, I was in my home office, and, and it, the, the walls just kept coming in farther and farther and farther. Uh, but we made it through, and uh, this joy that I have now of serving as president of Communitas uh, is deep and real. Uh, and since COVID now has, I don't want to say we're post-COVID, we're, we're, we're coping COVID is where we are. Uh, this year, I've been to San Francisco several times, to Denver several times, Colorado Springs twice, Seattle several times, Leavenworth, Washington, St. Regis, Montana, Croatia, Italy twice, Poland. By the way, uh, we had a, a conference in Croatia, and in, uh, at the conclusion of that, I went to Warsaw, Poland, and this was maybe four weeks after the start of, uh, of the war, and this was the most heartwarming and heart-wrenching thing I had ever experienced in my life was being in the Warsaw train station and seeing train after train after train come in, overloaded with refugees just flowing out from those cars. And seeing the, the destruction, the hurt uh, on their face, you know, many of them were alone with one bag if they had that. I met a young, uh, young woman. She got out only with her dog. Um, and I was just crying about her family that she had left behind. But the heartwarming part was seeing how these folks were welcomed and greeted and served and given food and clothing, and then almost immediately assigned to a family that would take them in for shelter. Um, pretty amazing stuff. We have a number of projects in Poland. We continue to this day in Communitas to um, twice a week there are four Ukrainian men that drive nine hours to Warsaw, and we fill up their semis, and we send them back to Kiev. I got to do that while I was there in, uh, in Poland. I've been to France twice, to England, to Scotland, New York, Portland, Los Angeles twice, the Netherlands, Jackson Hole, and Chicago, uh, all in these last number of months. And like Russ, had, or Russ, like Kevin had said, um, we have amazing things happening, especially in Eastern Europe and in Russia and Ukraine. We just started a new training with 25 Ukrainians. We've got over 500 Russians that are being trained uh, with Communitas right now. And the whole vision for Communitas, we uh, start and shape churches or communities of faith that love like Jesus in their neighborhood for the sake of transformed lives, transformed neighborhoods, and a transformed world. So it's pretty beautiful to see uh, what's going on around the world. And I also want to just thank you all so much because this community has supported Communitas 
and the work that I do for a very long time. And we couldn't do it without you and without, without partners like you. So thank you so much for that generosity. And also Russ, uh, over the last, not while he's been on sabbatical, um, prior to that, he's helped us a lot with developing some internship centers. We're starting our first one in Scotland, but then we'll go to Sao Paulo, uh, the Balkans, and some other key areas around the world. And, uh, and Russ has been uh, instrumental in that. So again, thank you. Thank you all so much. What a great privilege to be back home. Kevin was saying that, you know, it was 10 years ago now um, when I came on staff as a church planter at New Community. And he mentioned uh, working with me. We did, we worked together for a number of months, um, and we did meet in the back office, and we did have great conversations about theology and methodology and ecclesiology when we weren't, like, leaving to go to movies together, which we also did quite frequently uh, during the day. Yeah, Kev's laughing back there. Um, but I, I recall when he said, hey, I think I, think I want to try something different, and there's this opportunity back in Spokane. He said, would you talk to, to Russ and just kind of, you know, be like a reference? And so Russ and I get on the phone, and we're on the phone for two hours. And I'm talking to him about vision, about ecclesiology, all that stuff, all the fun stuff I like to talk about. And at the end of this time, I, I, I said these words to him. I said, do you have any other positions? Um, and at that point, I was the executive pastor of this, of this church in, in Coeur d'Alene. So it is great to uh, be back home. I have really enjoyed the tenor of this series you find yourselves in right now and looking at Mark. When Kevin and Russ asked me to put this on my calendar, I thought, oh, that's cool. It's Mark. You know, Mark is pretty simply written. It's written in plain language. Uh, Mark is short and to the point. This will be no problem. Then they throw Mark 7, 1 through 13 at me. Now, both of them know how much of a word nerd that I am and that I can get sucked into explaining things in minutiae detail, sometimes speaking 40 to 60 minutes on just some you know, interesting nuances of words. Now, our text this morning is often described as one of the hardest texts to translate in all of Mark. So we could spend the, you know, the next three weeks just exploring ritual hand-washing, which I'll show you here in a moment. Are there any takers on three weeks on hand-washing? Okay. Uh, or the tradition of the elders is extrapolated by the scribes in the 4th century BC, ultimately resulting in the Mishnah, which is still being updated and interpreted to this day. I'm telling you, it's big, y'all. It's big. Shall we dive into that in the next several minutes? Or how interested is anyone here today in Korban? anyone know what Korban means? Okay. Um, I got six hours just on Korban, so it'll be fun here to go through this very quickly. But here in this text as well is a very similar theme that Jesus uses time and time again in his teaching. And the meta message that we'll hear today is really rather quite simple. So pray with me as we uh, open the text. God, we are grateful for this time together, for this community, um, for your presence here in this place and in our lives and, and always. God, as we open this word, uh, may those things that are of your truth be deeply inscribed upon our hearts. And Lord, anything that I might say that is not, may those things be quickly forgotten. God, open us to receive you. In Jesus name. Amen. So I've chosen... Um, 
a translation of, this is the uh, NRSV that's called the Anglicized Edition, um, because I think it best explains the text. So let me read it here with you. They're gathered together to Jesus, the Pharisees, and some of the experts in the law, also known as scribes, who had come down from Jerusalem. They saw that some of his disciples ate their bread with hands which were ceremonially unclean. That is to say, hands which had not undergone the prescribed washings. For the Pharisees and all of the Jews who hold to the tradition of the elders do not eat unless they wash their hands, using the fist as the law prescribes. And when they come in from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they immerse their whole body. And there are many other traditions which they observe which relate to the prescribed washings of cups and pitchers and vessels of bronze. So the Pharisees and the experts in the law asked him, Why do your disciples not conduct themselves as the tradition of the elders prescribes, but eat bread with hands that are unclean? He said to them, Isaiah did well when he prophesied about you, you hypocrites, as it stands written, this people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. This so-called reverence of men is an empty thing, for they teach as doctrine human rules and regulations. They teach as doctrine human rules and regulations. While you hold fast to the tradition of men, you abandon the command of God. He said to them, you make an excellent job of completely nullifying the command of God in order to observe your own tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of his father or mother shall certainly die. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, that by which you might have been helped by me is korban, that is to say, God dedicated, you no longer allow him to do anything for his father and mother, and you thereby render invalid the words of God by your tradition which you hand on. You do many things like that. I like that last part, especially for us, because that, that whole Corban thing is maybe a little hard for us to understand. But we kind of get the meta message, don't we? Uh, Jesus is saying, you do many things like that. So we have an encounter here, once again, where Jesus is questioned about his and his disciples' actions. Now, this is a reasonable inquiry right, by the scribes and by the Pharisees, um, especially to a rabbi. Anybody that had a following and was teaching others, they were considered rabbis, and to be knowledgeable in all of these things. And so it's a reasonable question, actually, that they ask, and, and I want us to be careful not to assume that they were asking it out of anger. They were asking it, I believe, out of curiosity, which, of course, turns to anger as Jesus goes through his, his ministry. But remember the early days of COVID, right? I mean, what was, what was the thing? We were all to wash our hands, right? And we were supposed to sing happy birthday twice. And that was how long we were supposed to wash our hands. Now, if you saw people who didn't do that, I know I was like this because I was like, hey, this COVID thing is serious, guys. Let's take this seriously. Wash your hands and, and other people may not get sick or as sick. So if I saw somebody who wasn't washing their hands, I would think, you idiot. So this context is not hygienic in any way. In this case, it's ceremonial. And Mark recognizes his audience here, doesn't he? He doesn't just say that hand-washing, which he could have said, because anybody in the audience would have known at that point what they meant by hand-washing. But he goes on and explains it. 
So we see here the, the wider context of Mark's audience, um, giving especially some context to the Greek reader. So hand-washing, why is that so important? And I don't want us to spend too much time on this, but the idea behind this was, uh, was ceremonial, that you had to be clean in order to engage in anything, especially the eating of food. So in this context, what had come down as the tradition of the elders over years and years and years was this idea of washing hands. Now, washing hands wouldn't happen just before a meal. Washing of hands would happen in between each course of a meal. And it was very um, strict how they looked upon this. Now, what's interesting with hand washing is it actually required a couple of people to do it. So there's a communal aspect to this. But the hand washing, they would take water that was set aside. Corban actually kind of works for that. Um, they would take water that was set aside just for the ritualistic purpose of cleansing. Recall when Jesus made water into wine. You know those big clay pots that were full of water? That was water set aside for cleansing. I think that is so cool that Jesus turned that into wine and they drank it. But that's another story. Um, so the idea was that you had to have uh, ceremonial, ceremonially clean hands and other parts of the body, depending on what other things you may have encountered, such as a dead body, for example. You had to be completely clean uh, before you could go back to temple or engage in eating or those kinds of things. But the process is they would take this water, and at first what they would do is they would have somebody else that would pour the water onto their hands, and, and they would have them up like this. Now, the reason they would have them up like this, and I know that I'm dripping water and I'm doing it intentionally, is because uh, in some translations, the word thorough is used, a thorough hand cleansing. A thorough hand cleansing, the word thorough actually in the Greek means through, right? So when they say through, that means a hand washing that goes from the tip of the finger to the elbow. Some would call that um, a log was another thing. That, so they, they, about the size of a cut log for a fire. That's how far the water would have to go on your hands, right? And then once that water did that, then the fist. So the fist, a thorough washing, would be a fist like going through something. And when a fist goes through something, it goes up to the elbow. So that's what the washing was about, all the way to the elbow. And then the fist, they would take the fist and use the fist to wash the hand. Okay, this was all very prescribed and all laid out, and everybody knew this. Then once that was done, somebody else again would have to come with the set-aside water, because now this water is no longer good, right? Uh, they would take the, the bowl, and, and they would actually pour it on the arm from the elbow down, and then that water would run down and drip off because of gravity. Uh, and that's how they would become ritualistically cleansed. Now, this was true of all kinds of things. There are hundreds of pages of rules and regulations. Some of them are in the texts of Leviticus and elsewhere. But most of these were oral traditions that came to be expected behavior by everyone. Now, we may think that this is silly. We may think it's antiquated. We may think it's not applicable to us today. But what are some of the expected behaviors that have been passed down over the last 1,500 years of Christendom, over the last 200 years, even over the last 20 years, what are some of those expected behaviors? 
when do we teach as doctrine human rules and regulations? When do we do that? You see, I would say that there are just too many examples for us to explore. Examples that have split communities, examples that have caused division, examples that have brought about even war and death. And what does Jesus tell us? He says that while we hold fast to the traditions of man, we abandon the command of God. You see, then, as now, there is a fundamental split here. That between those who see religion as ritual, ceremonial, rules, and regulations, and those who see in relationship with the divine a loving God, and thereby loving their fellow women. So Jesus gets really blunt here. He calls them hypocrites. There's lots of scholarship around that one Greek word, hypocritas. Essentially, one whose whole life is a piece of acting without any sincerity behind it. Now, there are multiple layers of, of the word hypocrite, but that's what it ultimately came to be known as. Somebody who was living a false front, doing certain things to look a certain way, but had no sincerity around it. That's what Jesus is calling. I think maybe now they were getting a little angry. Okay? That's what Jesus was saying, that, that essentially they are hypocrites, that they are living this false life with no sincerity behind it at all. This is what William Barclay has to say on hypocrisy. There is no greater religious peril than that of identifying religion with outward observance. There is no commoner religious mistake than to identify goodness with certain so-called religious acts. Church-going, Bible-reading, careful financial giving, even timetabled prayer do not make us good. The fundamental question is, how are our hearts towards God and towards others? And if in our hearts there are enmity, bitterness, grudges, and pride, not all the outward religious observances in the world will make us anything other than hypocrites. But in our text, Jesus goes even deeper to make his point. Now, this is the difficult section to translate, but he delivers the mic drop here by using the term korban. And just how pathetic the hearts of the religious observers had become. Okay, so what's korban? The text gives us a little hint, something which is God-dedicated. But this came to be used in a really, really kind of strange and awful way. So when someone says something is korban in this context, that means that money has been set aside, or other things like crops, have been set aside solely for God's use or God's purpose. Now in our case, we would kind of say a tithe. Like we give a tithe and, and that goes to the church and we hope that that's being used solely for God's purpose and not for Russ's jet airplane that he flies around in. But uh, that would be korban. Now here's the, here's the rub on korban. It, it was like um, the end of the conversation. When you say something is korban, it's like, oh, okay, well then, th that can't be used for anything. That, it, end of conversation. What Jesus is saying here is, when your father or your mother comes to you and they say, we need help, and your reply is, well, you know, I'd love to help, but I've already set aside that. That's dedicated to God. Can't touch it. Here had become the, the um, practice in this time. Lenders would uh, lend, called usury, right? They would lend money and get high interest back. And then when the people couldn't pay it back, the lenders would say, yeah, but you don't understand, the money I lent to you is korban. 
Therefore, you need to pay it back so it can go to its rightful purpose. Now, they didn't do that. They would put some of it toward the temple, perhaps, but usually they were keeping a large percentage of it themselves. So this idea of korban, of saying something is dedicated to God, it's another form of hypocrisy, is it not? When we say, oh, yeah, hey, listen, I would, I would love to help you out. I know you're in real need right now, but, you know, sorry, that, that, that's set aside. It's a big, another point here of hypocrisy. Here's the point Jesus is making. There are cases in which strict performance of the scribal law made it impossible to carry out the law of the Ten Commandments. Are we seeing the disconnect here? What is the warning for us today? You see, when, when societies become um, in a place of disconnect, interesting things start to happen. We find ourselves kind of in a tipping point, don't we? I think we're in the midst of a pretty significant one right now. COVID, I think, helped spur it along, but I think we're in the midst of a pretty significant tipping point where a lot of us are seeing the disconnects, right? Um, I believe that uh, when I got this, the, the message was entitled, um, When Religion Gets in the Way of God. And I think that's an apt title. Uh, but I actually retitled it, uh, what did I retitle this to? Uh, Jesus the Great Deconstructionist. Use kind of a modern word. Because what's happening here in this context is Jesus is creating a disconnect. You say this, you say you want to live by the law, but these rules and regulations that you say are doctrine make it impossible for you to live by the law. That's a big disconnect, isn't it? Now, think, think of, uh, of the disconnects that have happened through history. The Reformation happened because of a big disconnect. The church was engaging in things that were disconnected from the reality of what many people thought the church should be. That started the Reformation. Disconnects happen, and they happen culturally, but they also happen to us internally. What happens to us when we see the disconnects that exist in our lives? I'm going to switch gears here a little bit. Friday night, this last, this last Friday night, um, some close, close friends of ours, we got together, just the four of us, and our dogs. Um, the baby was in the house, closely monitored. We were outside. It was a cold night, and we built a fire. And the purpose for this was for us to do a grief ritual. You see, about a year ago, a pretty significant event took place uh, in all of our lives, and we had realized that the anniversary was, was coming up, and, and many of us had realized that we were carrying a lot from this um, event, and other things, not just that one, but other events too. So we took our heartaches, we took our anger, we took so many things and spent about two hours around this fire. We were sharing, we were listening, we were confessing, and we were weeping. And then as we um, discussed what we had written down on pieces of paper, we put them one by one into the fire. And here's what I realized for me. I have been living for a year with a serious disconnect. Serious disconnect. And, and then I look back at what, at what Barclay says here. That if we in our hearts, if there are enmity, bitterness, grudges, and pride, not all the outward religious observances in the world will make us anything other than hypocrites. 
And I have been living for the last year with enmity, bitterness, grudges, and pride. That has created a significant disconnect. So when you have that internal disconnect and you have cultural disconnects, we're setting ourselves up for something pretty significant. Now, this Mark text, by the way, uh, the, the next morning, Friday, Saturday, uh, not just me, but all of us who participated, we, we had felt literally lighter. We had felt cleansed um, through weeping, a lot of weeping, uh, but through other things that we engaged in, it just it felt like, oh my gosh, we, I, I, at least for me, I've begun to deconstruct those things in my heart and reimagine um, a better future. So if you want any tips on grief rituals, uh, let me know, because they can be really, really powerful. So this Mark text brings me back to Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew, in the Sermon of the Plain in Luke. Jesus, these words just have meant so much to me over the last decade, as as I've done my own deconstruction in so many ways, especially around what church is and what church means. But Jesus uses these terms frequently. You'll know them. Jesus says, to those who are listening, You have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, and then he'd spell out what was said. What's interesting, oftentimes, what he said you have heard is said is in the Torah, right? It's in the scriptures. And then Jesus says that whole thing, and then he says these important words, but I say to you, love your enemies. And there are passages where Jesus does this time and again. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. Now, isn't Jesus doing essentially the same thing here in this Mark passage? He's taking everything and he's turning it upside down. He's calling into question how they say they feel or think or believe about God and saying your actions aren't aligning with that. He's turning everything upside down. You see, when we apply this, to our times and to our lives, what happens when everything you presumed to be true has been exposed as false? Well, typically we get defensive and we dig our heels in and we fight. Do we see that happening at all around us? Maybe a recent election, maybe another election so many years ago. We um, become disconnected I think, when that starts happening in our lives. It happens in politics, economics, education. Uh, We look back and think back on some of the maybe sketchy stories we heard in in Sunday school when we were kids, and we we come to church as adults and we're going, you know, I don't know that that quite actually works. Um, I don't know that, you know, the, the story of Noah is actually something we should paint and put on the walls of kids' bedrooms. The destruction of mankind. Yeah, let's paint that on the baby's room. So it's no wonder we find ourselves in deconstruction or whatever other term you wish to use. We're uncovering the disconnects. So I want to leave us with some quotes and and then summarize very quickly in just one sentence really what I think Jesus is getting at in this teaching. As we enter into the disconnects, 
as we see them in our own lives, as we see them culturally, as we start to question some of the very things that we thought were truth and are calling into question, you know, I'm not so sure that was true. These are some quotes that have meant a ton to me as I find myself in this place. As humans, we are creatures of overreaction, choosing polarities rather than living in tension. Mike Breen. The test of a first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposed ideas in the mind at the same time and still retain the ability to function. F. Scott Fitzgerald. It does take great maturity to understand that the opinion we are arguing for is merely the hypothesis we favor, necessarily imperfect, probably transitory, which only very limited minds can declare to be certainty or truth. Good one. In many cases, what is logical is incredibly subjective, and what is factual is shrouded in controversy. Right? Motivated reasoning is how people convince themselves or remain convinced of what they want to believe. They seek out agreeable information and learn it more easily, and they avoid, ignore, devalue, forget, or argue against information that contradicts their beliefs. The last one. The more sure I am that I am right, the more likely I will actually be mistaken. My need to be right makes it more likely that I will be wrong. As we were uh, around that fire on Friday night, and I have her permission to share this, uh, Christy said, I, I, I grieve the loss of spiritual certainty wow, that is really profound. <laughs> the loss of spiritual certainty. And then I really started to think about it. Spirituality is by nature uncertain. It's the nature of spirituality. Spirituality is a moving forward into growth. It necessitates change. That's the whole method of transformation. That's the whole work of the Holy Spirit. The already not yet. Spirituality is by necessity uncertain. And yet, it can shake our foundations to the core. So traditions, I love traditions. I love the tradition of Thanksgiving. I love the tradition of food, right? I, I, there are lots of traditions that, that I love. And then tradition. I hate it. There are just some things that we continue to do over and over again, whether it's a family system, whether it's a cultural system, whether it's a church, whether it's a community, uh, whether it's a nation, and whether it's the world. There are some things that we hold as tradition that, folks, I'm telling you, we've got to let them go. We've got to let them go. We just have to ask ourselves, what if we're wrong? We have to discern where Jesus is screaming at us in our context today. You have heard that it was said to your families for generations, but I'm telling you, and we hear those words from Jesus today for us, I think we need to. So I'll leave you with this, and this is the meta understanding of this somewhat complicated section of Mark. 
here it is. Nothing that prevents helping another person can ever be a rule approved by God. Nothing that prevents helping another person can ever be a rule approved by God. No core bond, right? No hypocrisy. No standing to our traditions. No sticking to our assumptions. No sticking to the lies that we have come to believe as truth. None of that stuff. When we see somebody who is in need, there is no rule by God that would keep us from filling it. None. Pray with me. God, I, I would pray that you would continue to help us be exposed in our own lives where we hold hypocrisy. God, where we have taken our human traditions and we have made them doctrine. And God, would you um, meet us in that place of tension? And God, would you guide us into your love? God, where we see those in need, May we fill that need. Go with us, go before us.